Okay, good evening, uh, everyone. It's good to see you all tonight, and we're going to go ahead and start our Bible study. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 9 tonight. Isaiah chapter 9. And we'll look at verses 1 to 7. Isaiah chapter 9, and uh, we'll be reading verses 1 to 7. As we, you know, prepare for, you know, thinking about the incarnation and uh, what it is that God has accomplished in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, uh, this passage from Isaiah is predicting uh, these things uh, that would happen as a result of uh, Christ coming into the world, right? Christ coming into the world. So Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7 says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a, land, uh, in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be burning for fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank You for Your Word, and Lord, we do pray that uh, as we think and consider uh, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, um, who He is, and Lord, what He has done, uh, Lord, how it is that at His incarnation, uh, Lord, You have brought uh, the consummation of our salvation into this world. Uh, he is the consolation of Israel. He is the one uh, to whom we should look for the salvation uh, of our souls, for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Lord, how it is that you turn uh, darkness into light. Lord, how you turn our sorrow into joy uh, through the salvation that can be found only in Him. So, Lord, we pray that you might give to us, Lord, an even greater understanding of His person and His work. Lord, how it is that He uh, is the, the head of His church. Lord, how He is the one who saves us and delivers us from everything that we could not be delivered from through the law of Moses. So, Lord, teach us tonight as we uh, think about and meditate on this passage. And, Lord, as we now even prepare our hearts and minds uh, for uh, the celebration of His birth, Lord, may we do so with a full understanding of, of truth and knowledge of, of the great salvation You have brought into the world. So, Lord, bless us tonight, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, beginning here in Isaiah chapter 9, uh, in verse 1, there is this announcement <clears throat> that this land or this region uh, where uh, there was darkness, there was sorrow, there was contempt, uh, there was gloom, there experienced by the people because of the judgment of sin, that that gloom and that contempt is going to be turned, there's going to be a reversal of fortunes 
concerning this territory, this land, and the people who dwell there. In verse 1, he says, There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. There, this area in this region of Zebulun and Naphtali, they're located in the northwestern part of the land of Israel. This was a place that was known for gloom, for anguish, for contempt in the earlier times. This being the time when the Assyrians came in and vanquished and conquered that place. Right? They completely wiped them out. They decimated them. So when the judgment of God came upon Israel because of their sin, these were the ones who first experienced it because the Assyrians resided to the north of Israel. And when they came down, they came into those northern regions first. They turned those places into territories of gloom, of anguish, of contempt because of the sin and the judgment that came upon them. However, though God judged His people and though He treated them in this way because of their sin, God did not forsake or abandon His promises and His promise to do good to them and to bring blessing and glory and honor to them. So in the later times, He's going to make it glorious. This land that was at one time filled with gloom and anguish, right? Because of their sin and because of the judgment of God that they experienced in the devastation there by the Assyrians and even later by the Babylonians. At this late, later time, He's going to make it glorious, right? This territory will be known for glory and honor and that there will be a glory that God sends upon this area. Here, this is the way by the sea, the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Even this area where there was this mixture of Jew and Gentile, right? Where one would not expect with such a pollution or a mixture of people in this way that, that this would be the place where the glory of God would be so clearly seen. One would expect an area with more purity concerning the makeup of the people, that they would be predominantly of the Jewish race, the descendants of Abraham. Yet here, it is Galilee of the Gentiles, an area where there is this great mixture of Jew and Gentile, and this will be a place that is made glorious. And we know that this is where Jesus did the majority of His ministry, was in this area. This is where He began His ministry, was in this area, and that is the glory that God bestows upon them. It is not a glory of riches and wealth and of worldly honor and riches, but rather it is the glory of the knowledge of God seen in the person and work of Jesus Christ in the preaching of, of the gospel by Christ and also in the mighty miracles that He performed, He made this way glorious by revealing the light, the light of the world, to them at the first. Right? This is where He began His ministry. We know that when Christ came into the world, the true light came in. Right? The light was shining. But for the first part of His life, he was uh, living a common, uh, anonymous life, right? He was living there under the rule of his father and his mother. And it wasn't until uh, he was around 30 that he began his public ministry in which he began to display who he was to the world. And when he began that ministry, it was here in this region, in this territory, in the very place called Galilee of the Gentiles. Verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a land, a dark land, the light will shine upon them. Here, he relates the spiritual condition of the people as those who walk in darkness or those who live in a dark land. 
Certainly, clearly, obviously, he doesn't mean this literally. He doesn't mean that the sun never shines on this territory of land or this part of the world, that they live in a state of perpetual darkness, like Alaska during the wintertime, right? When the sun never shines, it never rises, and there the people do live in perpetual darkness for a couple of months of the year. Well, that's certainly not the case in this area of the world, that the sun does rise and it does shine. But there, when he says the people are in darkness, it's obviously meaning so in a figurative way, in a spiritual way. And this is what is true of them. They walked in darkness. They live in a dark land because of sin, right? It is sin that makes us ignorant and makes us not know who God is and how to worship Him and how to be reconciled to Him. And when we are living in sin, we are living and walking according to darkness, according to our own feudal human wisdom that is compared in comparison to the wisdom of God. God's wisdom is light and our own wisdom is like darkness, right? Which will lead us nowhere, but only to our own ruin and misery. In Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians 4, 17 to 20 it refers to the state of sin in this capacity. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 20. Ephesians four seventeen says, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. So there, the Gentiles, who in this way, he's referring to Gentiles in the sinful state, in the natural state, right? That they are in futility of mind, they're darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life of God. There's ignorance that is in them. They have a hard heart. They are callous and they give themselves over to every kind of sin and impurity. There it is a darkness that is upon them. Now they're unaware of this darkness. They believe that their darkness is actually light. This is what they believe. They think that they're very enlightened, that they're living a very good life, that this is what is good and pleasing to, their, to themselves. Therefore, it must be good and pleasing to God, right? And this is the way that people will live and, and stay in this state so long as they're dead in their sins. They are darkened in their understanding so that they believe darkness is light. And what is light, they actually believe is darkness, right? And this is what the people are described as in Isaiah chapter 9. They live in a land of darkness, right? Where there is no truth, where there's no knowledge of God, where there's little access to the things of God. And certainly this was true during the time of Christ, that though this area did have some access to the things of God, yet it was so corrupted by their leaders that it was actually darkness, right? Because it was not resulting in true worship of God and it was not leading the people to salvation. Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, 13 to 14. Colossians 1, 13 says, For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There He, Christ, rescued us, the church, believers, from the domain of darkness. In the natural state, this is the domain 
in which we live, we belong. We are part of this kingdom, this dominion that is defined by darkness, that is ruled by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, now at work in the sons of disobedience. But now we've been transferred out of that dominion and into the kingdom of his beloved son. And the kingdom of Christ is not a kingdom of darkness, but rather a kingdom of light, where the light of the knowledge of God shines upon us, and we have this true understanding and apprehension of the truth and the things of God. And this darkness is dispelled through the light of the gospel. It is the gospel and the light that it brings that shines into our hearts and dispels this ignorance and gives to us the true knowledge of God, the true knowledge of our sin, the true knowledge of how to be reconciled to God and how we can have the forgiveness of sins. And this is what has happened in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. They were living in darkness, but now uh, light has been shown on them. They have seen a great light. This light has come and it has shown on these people. It dispelled this darkness so that there was the knowledge of God, at the very least being proclaimed in this area, but also in many of them, not only was it proclaimed outwardly, but it was received inwardly as well, in that they believed it, right? They agreed, they adhered to this knowledge and to this light that was found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, this passage is quoted. Matthew chapter 4, Verse 16, we'll begin actually in verse 12. Matthew 4, 12, this passage is quoted as being fulfilled when Jesus began his ministry. 4, 12, now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here, this is fulfilled when Christ comes into this region, when He relocates from Nazareth to Capernaum, and then He begins His public ministry, and the summary of His preaching is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when He begins to proclaim that message, then the light is shining upon them, in His person and in His words, and then they also, it was manifest to them in His great works, the mighty miracles that He performed that gave a, a further verification to the truthfulness of his word. John chapter 12. John chapter 12 verse 46. John 12:46. There it says, I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. So he is light, the light of the world. Christ is. He is the one where we learn true spiritual knowledge, where we learn who God is. It is only in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the light that reveals to us the true knowledge of God. And whoever believes in Him 
will not remain in darkness, but instead they're transferred from the domain of darkness that we read earlier into the kingdom of the beloved son, into the kingdom of Christ, which is a kingdom of light. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, uh, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So there, the light that shines in our hearts, right, which is necessary for one to believe in the gospel, to believe and to take hold of these truths, it's not enough that we hear it outwardly. It must also shine into our hearts. But this is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Right? The knowledge of God's glory, which is not known in the world, because they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. But when someone receives the light of Christ, Right? They receive a knowledge of the glory of God that is only revealed and known through the face of Christ. This is the only way that we can come to know the true and living God. It is only through the face of Christ. Through the light of Christ, we come to know the knowledge of the glory of God. And this is what is happening in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3, as fulfilled and quoted there in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, that this light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the person of Christ is being revealed to them through His person, through His visiting them, through His preaching gospel to them, through the many miracles that He performed as well. Verse 3, Isaiah 9, 3, You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. Here, Christ will multiply the nation. They will increase. He will increase their gladness. This multiplying of the nation is the drawing in or the bringing in of the saints, right, or of the elect, calling them into the church and adding them to the kingdom of God. And under the ministry of Christ and through the preaching of the gospel, there is this multiplication of the nation, this great ingathering of people who are making their way into the kingdom of Christ. This is what he has come to do. He is the cornerstone upon which the church is built. And as his voice, as his light goes out into the world, then he calls sinners to himself and they are brought into the kingdom of Christ. They're, they are gathered in so that the nation is multiplied, right? Not meaning the literal physical nation of Israel, but meaning the true Israel of God, which is the spiritual people, those who are Jews and Greeks from beginning to end, from Adam to the end of the world. They are brought into the kingdom of Christ. And so he brings this multiplication there of the nation. And as a result, they have gladness. They are glad in His presence as with the gladness of harvest. When people come to the knowledge of the glory of God in the person of Christ, when they see these things, when they believe these things, right? when they understand that their sins are forgiven, that all of their sins are atoned for through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what is the result of such knowledge? Is it not joy and gladness in our salvation? This is what they do. They have joy and gladness that is even greater than what men have at the harvest. 
When the farmer goes and plants his crop and the rains come and fall and he has a good year and there's a bountiful harvest and he goes and he harvests all of his crop and brings it into his barn and there is a bounty that is overflowing, right? That he would be very glad and very joyful with such circumstances. Well, this is what happens with those who are brought into the kingdom of Christ. There is joy, there is gladness through the knowledge of the forgiveness of sins, that we belong to God, that we are His children, that we've been adopted into His family, that there is an inheritance waiting for us, that there is this new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells, that we can call God our Father, that Christ is our elder brother. Right? All of the promises of God that find their yes and amen in Christ, when we come to this knowledge that these things belong to us and that nothing can separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord, then it results in joy, it results in gladness, greater than what they have when their grain and wine abound. And this is what he speaks of here. And we know from Psalm 1611 that in God's presence there is fullness of joy. That is where full joy is found, in the presence of God, seeing His glory. That is where true joy is found, and that joy is experienced in the life of a believer at His conversion. Because at His conversion, whose glory is He beholding? It's the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and He has this joy that is unspeakable. Verse 4, For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. Here, God will, the, the reason there is such joy, right, this light that has shined on them, this multiplication, this gladness that they have, is because they have been set free and released from this yoke of burden. There's a burden that's upon them, there's a staff on their shoulder. There is a rod of the oppressor that is upon them. This is what we know in our sinful state. We are in the yoke and slavery of sin. We have this heavy burden of guilt of sin that is upon us, and we can do nothing in ourselves to relinquish this yoke. We cannot rid ourselves of it. We cannot break it. We cannot remove it, right? We have it upon us, and there is nothing that we can do to deliver ourselves from the yoke of the burden of sin, from the rod of the oppressor that is uh, upon us, that is abusing us in such ways. But what does Christ do for His people? He breaks this yoke of slavery, this yoke of bondage. This staff of the oppressor, He takes and rips it apart. The rod is no longer there to oppress those who belong to Him. He delivers them from their enemies, from those who are tormenting them and those who are oppressing them with such cruelty. He breaks the burden, the staff, and the rod. Now, what is He referring to, right? What is this burden that Christ delivers us from that results in such joy and gladness in His people? Well, it has to be the burden of sin. It is sin that weighs us down and burdens us, and it is the penalty of sin, which is the death that we are under the yoke of. And Christ comes and delivers us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. John chapter 8 John chapter 8, verse 34. John 8, 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. 
right? Those who commit sin or those who are practicing sin, they are slaves to sin. They are under this yoke of bondage to sin, right? And we need to be delivered from sin, but we cannot deliver ourselves through our own works or through our own deeds of righteousness. There's nothing that we can do to overcome or to deliver ourselves from this burden, from this yoke of sin that is upon us. But He comes and breaks the yoke for us, right? He delivers us from these things and replaces that yoke with a new yoke that is easy and light, an easy, light burden of Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews 2, 14 to 15, also describe this slavery to sin and death. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Through fear of death, we are subject to slavery all our lives. We know, all men know, that death is on the horizon, that death is coming for them, and that it is appointed to men to die once and after that, judgment. And they don't know what's going to happen to them in the life to come. So they are in fear, they are in dread, they are in terror of this day of death that they know is coming and what is going to happen to them on the other side of it. And they seek to comfort themselves with lies and delusions to alleviate this fear and this dread that all men have because of the knowledge of death and the knowledge of their own sin. But what does Christ do? He renders powerless the one who has the power of death. He breaks his yoke. He breaks his rod. He breaks his staff so that with his people, the devil can no longer hold them under this fear of death. We don't fear death because we know that there is a resurrection from the dead and that if we die... To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and that in due time, Christ will raise our mortal bodies and give us an immortal body that can never die again, and that we will live with Him for all eternity. So we don't fear the day of death, because we know what lies on the other side. We know that there is a life to come. We know that there is a day of judgment, and we're prepared for those things through faith in Christ. And therefore, this fear of death, this yoke of burden, this rod of the oppressor, this staff on the shoulder has been broken by Christ. And he co compares it to the battle of Midian, as at the battle of Midian, right? During the days of the judges, during the time of Gideon the judge in Judges chapter 7, the Midian, the, uh, Midian nation was oppressing the Israelite nation. And during that time, God delivered Israel from their oppressors, Right? through Gideon, right? Gideon was the one raised up by God to come and to break the yoke of the oppressor. And just as God did through Gideon, so he will do through Christ. Gideon did it to a physical oppressor, a physical enemy, but Christ will do it to the ultimate enemy, which is sin and death and Satan. And also, he could have used many different references. He could have used uh, as during the days of Moses when they were delivered from Egypt, as during the days of David when they were delivered from many other enemies. There's many other enemies that have risen up during the nation of Israel. Why specifically as during the days of Gideon and during the time of Midian? And I think because of the foolishness 
of the deliverance that God gave to Israel through the leadership of Gideon. Right? We remember that when Gideon delivered Israel from their oppressor, God did so in a very foolish way. Foolish in the eyes of men, but not foolish in the eyes of God. Right? Going into battle with an army of 300, armed with pitchers and uh, torches and a trumpet, and yet it was through these weak means, means that would never deliver any army, right? No one looking objectively, no one who is a strategist in military and in, in warfare would think that this is a good plan to go into battle against such a great army, to have a very small force of men and for them to be armed with things like a pitcher, a torch, and a trumpet. And yet what did God do with such foolish means? He completely delivered them from the hands of their enemies. And what is God doing today through the preaching of the gospel? Is it not foolishness in the eyes of men? The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That life would come out of death. That our Savior would Himself die on a tree. That the King of glory would come and wrap Himself uh, in a ba as a babe in, in the manger. Right? That these things would happen is very foolish to the world, and yet it is the very wisdom of God. This is where our salvation is found, because the wisdom of God is wiser than men. And even today, still, when God sends forth His gospel, He does it through the foolishness of preaching. And He uses weak, frail, mortal men who themselves are subject to death, and He puts this treasure in jars of clay, and then He brings about a great deliverance, right, in these ways. Just as He did during the days of Gideon, so He continues to do here as well. Verse 5, Isaiah 9, 5, For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. Here, these things that are associated with warfare, the boot of the booted warrior, the cloak that he has, the battle, all of the things associated with warfare and with battle, those things are going to be all rolled up and will be burned as fuel for the fire because there will be no more war. There will be perpetual peace that is established for his people through the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, here up to this point, he's describing the benefits, the benefits what God will do, the result, what the people experience. But what is the basis of all of this? What is it that brings all of these things about? And that's what he describes in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace." Right, A child will be born. A son will be born for us. God will accomplish all of this for His people through this one singular individual, this child, this son, who is born, who comes into the world. He is the one who will establish and will bring about the salvation of the church. He will be the cornerstone upon which the church will rest and upon which the entire temple of God will be built. A child, a son specifically, which brings us back to what we looked at two weeks ago, Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. We talked about the seed of Abraham. We talked about last week the seed of David. 
It is this seed, this descendant, this child, this son specifically that will come into the world and he will be the means used by God to save his people and to bring about this great deliverance from our sins. In Luke chapter 1, in Luke chapter 1, there it speaks of this in verse 26. Luke 1 26. It says, Now in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So there, the angel announces to Mary specifically that she will bear a son and a child, and that this son, this child that she bears, will himself be called Son of the Most High God. And God will give to him the throne of his father David. So it is in the birth of this child that God is accomplishing these events. Also notice that the son is born for us. It's for us. The child is given for us or to us. The reason Christ came into the world was to save sinners. This is why He took on human flesh. It was for our benefit. For us, He did these things. He did not do it for Himself. He did not need salvation. He did not do it in order to increase His essential glory. His glory is perfect and known by the angels and by God the Father and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. Now, of course, His birth manifested His glory and made it known and revealed in the world, but it did not add to the essential glory of God or to the glory of Christ. So why did He come into the world? For whose benefit? Who is the one who is the recipient who benefits from His birth, from His life, from His death, from His resurrection, from His ascension, and now His sitting at the right hand of God interceding for us? He was born for our benefit in order to grant to us this great salvation. Right? As it says in 2 Corinthians 8 9, that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. He was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. And that poverty that Christ experienced began at his incarnation when he took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself by taking on human flesh. And he did it for whose benefit? For our benefit, right? He did it for us. He also says here in chapter 9, verse 6, that this child, 
the government will rest on his shoulders. Right? The government. All that the government does. Now, you know, you're thinking, well, that doesn't sound very, very, very good. But government in the right sense, right? In the proper sense, as the ruling and reigning over the people, protecting them, providing for them, providing good laws for them, doing all that a good government does on behalf of its people. And here specifically in this context and in the context of the Old Testament, a government under a king. Well, Christ will be king and the entire government, all of the roles and responsibilities will reside on him and him alone. He bears the weight of it all. He doesn't need lieutenants. He doesn't need uh, underlings who can do parts of the administration for him. He is able to do all of it by himself. He and he alone is Lord and King over his church and the government rests on his shoulders. Now this is true, generally speaking, of the whole world, that the whole world will come under the government and under the rule of Christ. But specifically now in this present age, it is true in his church among his people that his government is seen when Christ is ruling and reigning in the midst of his enemies, in the hearts and in the lives of his people who joyfully and gladly submit themselves to the laws of Christ. This is what he does. Then he gives a series of names that describe him. Right, the name being the item used to depict us, right, to describe who we are. Well, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, right? Four uh, descriptions of who he is, right? What is true of him? Jesus Christ is Wonderful Counselor. He is the one who reveals to us the will of God. He is the one who is in the counsel of God the Father. And God the Father withholds nothing from Christ. He reveals everything to Him. And then what does Christ do for us? He is our prophet, the only true prophet over the church, who is the one who reveals the will of God to us. Now we might say, well, there were prophets in the Bible, and certainly there were prophets in the Bible, and there were apostles in the New Testament as well. But who is the one that taught them? Who is the one who inspired them to say the things that they said? It was the Spirit of Christ within them. Christ is the source of all counsel, of all wisdom, of all understanding to His church. He is the wonderful counselor over the church of God. And the counsel He reveals to us is wonderful, right? It is good. It is glad tidings, right, of good news and great joy that He reveals to us. So He is the one who gives to us this knowledge of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. It rests and it resides on him. So much that Jesus could say to Philip that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. In John chapter 14, verse 9. We remember in Hebrews 1.3, it described him as the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. This is who Christ is. So that when we see Christ, when we see Jesus in the scriptures, whether by prophecy in the Old Testament, as we're reading now, or when we see him in the Gospels in his person, or when he is explained to us and everything related to him is unfolded for us, we are seeing the exact representation of God. We don't need to look anywhere else to know who God is. We don't need to incorporate aspects of other religions to fill out so that we have a complete picture of who God is. 
so that Jesus gives us some knowledge of God, but then these other religions also add to that, and then with all of them combined, we can come to a true knowledge of God. This is not the case at all. Only Jesus Christ is counselor over His church, and we receive knowledge of God only by looking at Him, by seeing it in His face and in His person. And what He reveals to us is wonderful. Right? Everything the Father does, He shows to His Son. And then the Son reveals those things to us. Next, He calls Him <clears throat> Mighty God. Mighty God. Now here, this is a very clear um, description or a very clear statement in the Old Testament of the deity and the humanity of Christ in one, one passage or in one verse. Right, Because he's already established that he is a child who is born to us, a son given to us. But here, this son, this child, is called Mighty God. So how can that be true of anyone who is a mere man? It's impossible to refer to any of you or for you to refer to me as Mighty God. To do so would be blasphemy. But it's not blasphemy to call Jesus Mighty God because he has the divine nature. Right? He has a human nature, and He has the divine nature in the one person who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as the Son of God, He is equal with the Father. And here, it's specifically the mighty power of God that is being ascribed to Him. He is the mighty God. He has all power that resides in God, resides in Christ, so that He is able to do those things that are impossible for men to do. Right? When we are looking to Christ... And we're looking to Him to save us from our sins. We need Him to do for us things that we cannot do for ourselves. Can we forgive ourselves of our own sins? Can we raise ourselves from the dead? Can we give ourselves eternal life? Are we able to transform our mortal bodies, the body that we have now, into an immortal, glorious body? We don't have the power to do any of those things. So how can we trust that Jesus has the power to do those things for us that we cannot do for ourselves, that are impossible for men. Well, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And here, He is the mighty God. So He is able to save to the uttermost those who believe in Him. He can deliver us from all of our sins, from death, from Satan. He can give to us the eternal life that we need. Next, He is called Everlasting Father. Again, attributes that are only true of God. Only God is eternal, right? Men are not eternal. Angels are not eternal. Demons are not eternal. The world is not eternal. Everything else had a definite beginning, a, a time when it did not exist, and then when God created it, and then from that point forward, it came into existence. So there is nothing in all of creation that is eternal. But here, He is called everlasting God. And again, this is true of His divine nature, that He existed before His incarnation, before He took on human flesh and came into the world. Jesus Christ existed as the Son of God, and there was no point where He was created or He came into being. But He is eternal with the Father. He is the everlasting Father. Here, when it says that He's the everlasting Father, it doesn't mean that God the Father became God the Son, as some heretics teach. 
right? There is an eternal distinction between the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. All three are God. All three have existed for all eternity. All three are the persons of the Trinity. But he means it in the sense that he is Father over his people. Christ is, in one sense, he is our elder brother, but in another sense, he is our Father. Just as Adam is our Father, in the natural sense, we all descend from Him. So spiritually, the church, who is the root and head of the church? Who is the Father from whom they descend? It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as everlasting Father, then what kind of life is He able to bestow upon His children? The eternal, everlasting life. An eternal life that will never come to an end. And is this not the hope of our salvation? that we will have eternal life with God in His presence, that we will be with Him in a new heavens and new earth for all eternity. Is Christ able to give eternal life to His people? Well, if He was not eternal, He couldn't do it. But He is the everlasting Father, so to His own children He is able to bestow eternal life upon them. And we remember in Hebrews chapter 2 that it refers to Him when it talks to Him about I am the children that God has given me, right? He is the one who has received children from God the Father. God the Father gave to him his children in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 13. And he, as their father, gives to them eternal life. Then lastly, he is also called Prince of Peace. He is the Prince of Peace. Prince being a synonym used for the king or the establisher, the one who is the, the reigning and ruling one, who is the grantor of peace to his people. All of the peace we have with God, all the peace we have with one another, all originates and comes from this one source, from this child who was born, who is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is our peace that establishes peace between us and God and between us and one another. It is only through Christ. In the sinful state, we have no peace because there is no peace for the wicked. But in the forgiveness of our sins, now we have peace with God. And we know in Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification by faith, the forgiveness of our sins, results in peace with God. When sin is dealt with, when it is removed... Now there is no barrier for God coming to terms of peace with us and existing in a relationship with us, in a covenant with us, that is a covenant of peace. And this is what Christ does. He is the prince. He is the one who brings peace to his people and establishes it in himself. And then in Ephesians 2.14, it talks about him being our peace and that this peace also reconciles men to one another. 2.14 says, For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Right? In the Old Covenant and in that administration that was there during that time, there was a necessary division between Jew and Gentile so that there was hostility between these two groups. There was not peace between Jew and Gentile, but they were at war and at odds with one another. But in Christ, this dividing wall of hostility, 
right? These laws and ordinances that were established in order to create this separation until the fullness of time in Christ, that wall has been torn down so that the two groups now have become one, one in the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile, all believing in Christ for salvation and all being built up into the same body and all based upon Christ, who is our peace. Then verse seven says, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this here. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, right? No end in two senses. What one, there's no end in terms of the scope of it. His government will extend and it will cover the globe, right? As water covers the sea. In the life to come, when Christ comes and establishes His perfect kingdom, there will not be any domain in the world at that time that is outside the rule of Christ. So that He is ruling over a part of the world, and then there still remains a part of the world that is under the rule and power of Satan. All other power and authorities will be completely reduced by Christ. It will be destroyed by Christ, and He will be the only government in the world. So there is going to be one world government. Now that's what they want to do today. But ultimately there will be one world government and who will be the king of that government? It'll be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there'll be no end to it. So there's no end to the scope of it, right? It covers the whole globe, but also there is no end to the time of it, the season of it, right? Right now, whatever governments or whatever worlds, uh, empires, king kingdoms, they have a time and season. They have a beginning and end. And then they have the end. They have de definite boundaries, both in terms of their scope and in terms of the time in which they exist on the world. And world history is a progression of one kingdom to another over and over and over again. These kingdoms rise up. They have their moment in the, in the sun. Everyone thinks that they will last forever. And eventually what happens to all of them? They all die. They all are reduced. They all are toppled and they come to an end. Well, the kingdom of Christ will never come to an end. So it will cover the whole globe and it will be an eternal kingdom. It will have no end to his government or to the peace of that government. So it will spread and there will be peace for those who dwell there. And it will be on the throne of David and over his kingdom. It is the throne of David that God is establishing in Christ. We read last week from 1 Chronicles 17, where there God made this promise to David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. And this is the honor that God gave to David, that this kingdom would, would be called his throne. Though ultimately it is Christ's throne, God gives it this name of David in order to bestow this honor and blessing upon him and to show that as a man, Christ did descend from the house of David. So the throne of David will be his throne and he will sit upon it forever. And this is what the angel we read earlier, Gabriel, what she told to Mary when she was announcing the birth of Christ, that God would give to this son that was born to her, that he would be the one who would sit on David's throne. And this would be this eternal kingdom established in the kingdom of Messiah. Then he says to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. First, to establish it, right? His throne, his kingdom is established by him alone. 
Christ establishes and builds up His kingdom without the assistance of other men, without receiving it from someone who came before Him. He establishes it on His own power, right, and by Himself. This is unlike David's kingdom. Much of what David inherited, much of what he walked into in terms of a kingdom, there were many people who came before him who did much work, who did much plowing, and then David reaped the benefits and the rewards of what they had done before. The conquest of the land of Canaan did not happen under David. It happened many years before under the ministry of Joshua. Then during the time of Judges, that land was sustained, right? They were kept uh, free from their enemies. Though there were oppressors that rose up from time to time, God delivered them through the hands of their judges. And then even during the kingship of Saul, God used him in some ways in order to preserve this land and this people and this kingdom and to keep them from being overrun and thrown out by these oppressors. So when David came to his kingdom and to his kingship, much work had already been done by him. And then he expanded on those things. And then when he died, he handed that down to Solomon. And Solomon reaped many rewards and benefits from all that David had done. And so it was time after time after time. But this is not the case with Christ. He is the one who establishes his kingdom without the assistance of any other man. He doesn't need David. He doesn't need Solomon. He doesn't need Joshua. He doesn't need anyone to do something else for him that he can't do for himself. He does it all by himself. And he does it. He is the one who upholds it as well. He establishes it and he upholds it all by his mighty right arm. Right without, again, the need or the assistance of any other man. Christ and Christ alone is the cornerstone. He is the establisher. He is the upholder of His church. He is the one who sustains His church by the word of His power. He is the one who keeps all of our enemies from vanquishing us. Only Jesus Christ alone. And He does so in justice and in righteousness. His kingdom is a kingdom of justice, where sin is dealt with in a just manner. He is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. We remember from Romans chapter 3 on Sunday afternoon. Also, in His kingdom, He makes us into the very righteousness of God in Him. He is the source of righteousness by which we become righteous and acceptable to God and fit to dwell in a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. We're not fit in our current state to dwell with God. We're not fit to be in the new heavens and new earth right now. But we will be one day. And who is the one who will make us fit for that kingdom? Jesus Christ. He will make all of us fit for that kingdom. He will do it by His own power. And then, for how long will this kingdom last? From then on and forevermore. He does it when He brings it about. It will be from then and it will be for all eternity. He has begun the good work within us from then on. And then how long will this work continue? Forevermore. It will never come to an end. But in our present situation, it's going to increase by degrees through this life and then brought to its consummation in the life to come. And then it will be eternal and it will be perfect and it will never change. Then lastly, what is the ultimate source or the ultimate reason that all of this is happening and all of this will come about. It is the zeal of the Lord of hosts who will accomplish this. 
What motivates God to do everything that God does? It is zeal for His own glory. It is to manifest and to display His glory. Why did God create the world in the first place? To manifest His own glory. Why did God send Christ into the world to come and to be born as a baby, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins, to be raised for our justification, to ascend to His right hand, to gather in His people, to transform them into His image, to bring them into a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells? Why did God do all of these things that He's done for us in Christ? For whose glory? For His own glory. To manifest it, and it is His zeal for His glory that prompts Him and motivates Him to bring these things about. And will God ever cease to be zealous for His own glory? Never. So is there a time where God will say, you know what, I'm tired of manifesting my glory. Let's just scrap the whole thing. It's never going to happen. Because His desire is to, to glorify His Son, Jesus Christ, in His church and in this present world. And in doing so, to glorify Himself. So that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that is why He does what He's doing. And we are the recipients of that glory, of that grace that manifests the graciousness of God, His compassion, His tenderness, His kindness, His forgiveness toward undeserving sinners. And if we have experienced that, then we ought to rejoice and be grateful and be thankful to God. And as we think about that, and especially in relation to this time of year, we are reminded that all of it rests and resides upon the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His coming into the world is what accomplished this redemption, this salvation that we are the recipients of, and that brings such great glory to God. So <clears throat> let us think about those things, and let us rejoice in the God of our salvation.